HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Todd Haymore, Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry for the Commonwealth of Virginia. I listen to Heritage Radio Network. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's episode of Straight No Chaser has been brought to you by Fairway Market. For more, visit FairwayMarket.com. Good morning. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I am speaking to you from the studios of the network in the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. Um, my guests today are Stacy Miller, the executive director of the Farmers Market Coalition, um, and uh, Michael Hurwitz, who is the executive director of Green Market New York City, and coincidentally, a board member of the Farmers Market Coalition. Um, welcome to both of you. You're there, right? Yes. Hi, Katie. Yes. Hi. Hi, Michael. Hi, Stacy. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I can't hear myself. Thank you. There, that's better. Um, so, guys, we had a couple of. Uh, well, first of all, Stacey, why don't you talk a little bit about the Farmers Market Coalition? Because you're sort of like an information clearinghouse for anybody who wants to start a farmers market, right? Uh, yes, in many ways. Um, the Farmers Market Coalition is a national 501c3 or a nonprofit founded in 2006 with a mission to strengthen farmers markets for the benefit of farmers, consumers, and communities. And that three prong. Um, triple bottom line, I guess as we call it, is really integrated into everything we do. So we, we focus um, our efforts on education, networking, and advocacy. Um, our members are farmers market organizations, farmers, state farmers market associations, and as well the nonprofits, businesses, and individuals that want to see farmers markets thrive. Fabulous. Good thing you're out there. And uh, Market, you're uh, Michael. Market, you're a, a board member of the uh, Michael Coalition. No, Michael, you're a board member of the. Coalition. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, you guys. <laughs> so, um, so you help them. You help advise them on how to make that happen. That kind of stuff. Um, I am one of many who who sit on the board. My my colleagues from around the, around the country, mm-hmm. uh, all who are doing incredible work. Um, yeah, really bringing our experience and understanding and expertise to to, uh, to the organization. Um, some bring connections, some bring their experiences, um, and it's it really is a, an 
I go onto the website all the time to, to look for resources, some of the advocacy positions that the FMC has been able to take. I'm not able to take it at, at Green Market on the national level. Stacy does an incredible job educating uh, our, our federal legislators on a number of issues that are relevant to us. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be a member. That's groovy. You guys, both of us, uh, we all three of us read the article in the Times on uh, Wednesday in the food section. Um, I'm going to totally change the subject here. And uh, speaking to um, the issue is a Gina Colada article about how there is no correlation between food deserts and obesity. And um, one of the key paragraphs in here that, that really struck me was, it is unclear how the idea took hold that poor urban neighborhoods were food deserts, but it had immediate appeal. There is even an agricultural department, food desert locator, and a national food desert awareness month sponsored by the National Center of Public, for Public Research, a charitable foundation. How do you guys respond to that? I mean, that, I mean, the basis of a lot of the programs in Green Market, including the double up your food bucks kind of stuff, um, are all based on the premise that um, food deserts exist in poor urban communities. So um, who's right here? Do you want me to? Michael, you, you start. Issue. Michael, maybe you could go and just sort of a, sure. you know, talk about I mean, your strategies at Green Market. I'll do, uh, let me say a few things. First of all, I, I can write a book that says that, you know, um, let me not go there because I don't know who's, gonna, who's listening <laughs> on the other end and might interpret what I say the wrong way. Yeah, I can design a study that's going to say anything. And I can have a Harvard degree and I can have a Yale degree and I can back it up with lots of figures and statements and it still not, might not be right. I want to know who's publishing it, what's behind it, and what's the point. And I also think that there is, life is not black and white. We live in a, in a very gray world. And we often like to oversimplify things and say that we've had created the magic solution to this newly identified issue. But I will get in, now get in, into specifics because it is a mission of Green, of green Market and Grow NYC, who a program you know, the, the, the nonprofit that Green Market is, is a part of, to ensure that all New Yorkers have access to the healthiest, freshest, regionally produced products. And we have spent years, whether through the Learn It, Grow It, Eat It program, really having farmers. I mean, we had farmers markets in Washington Heights and in the South Bronx long before the term food desert was ever coined. And we knew 25 years ago that, Every neighborhood wants healthy food for their families, wants the ability to access it, and wants to have their families uh, eating healthy food. doesn't matter what your income level is or, or where, you're, where you're from. We have markets that thrive in low-income communities. We have markets that fail in very wealthy communities, and it's really about community support and community buy-in and other options. Um, I started working in the work field of sustainable agriculture in Red Hook, Brooklyn. And I, when I started, I did not know what, what those words meant. I was not into farming. I did not know about food desert issues. Food desert was not a, a, a term yet. But what I did know is that 40% of household incomes were less than $10,000. The median household income was $14,000. And that the neighborhood had disproportionate rates of diet-related illnesses and that the food that was available to them, there, there was a supermarket, a C-Town, um, and there was a 99-cent store that sold other products. This was before Fairway went in. And I know that 
the Sea Town meat was irradiated, if not bleached. I knew that when I would shop there, I would not want to buy any of the produce that was available. Um, the varieties were, there may have been iceberg lettuce, there may have been red delicious apples, and there may have been Granny Smiths, and they were bruised, and they were waxed, and they had been sitting there for a long time. And it wasn't anything that I was certainly going to buy. And I knew what my kids were eating, which was what you could get for a dollar. They got two small juices and two honey buns, really cheap calories. So, yeah, I mean, this study and this newspaper article that we're reading where it says uh, you know, it, we might be surprised to learn that there are more fast food and corner stores in lower-income communities. No, we're not surprised to learn. That's what our community has been saying for decades, and that cheap calories does not necessarily mean health. There is a relationship between cheap calories and lack of health. And I could cite numerous studies that directly contradict Dr. Lee's assertion that say there are more supermarkets prevalent in lower-income communities than they, they are um, in upper and middle income. I mean, all the studies that I've ever quoted are that there are a third to half as many supermarkets in lower-income communities than in middle and upper-income communities. So, I'm, I, you know, I think... Look, you have to look at the methodology and what have you. But there are also other issues at play. And if I start rambling, cut me off. And if I'm rambling, <laughs> cut me off at any time. But, you know, well, they say there's a, there's a supermarket within one to two miles of every urban community. So how do you get there? How do you get there? Is <laughs> and there how do you problem? lug your groceries back? Actually, what was most interesting to me was not so much the article, but the comments that it generated, of which I read, you know, at least a couple of dozen. I don't know if you guys did that, too. But, you know, below they have the comment oh, yeah. opportunities. And, you know, they brought up exactly the issues that, um, you know, you just brought up with transportation issues. And then there's the whole issue of cooking. Who's going to cook it? You know, like, I mean... It, there's a, there's such a lack of education around nutrition, around basic cooking skills, around how people get their food and get it to their house and who's going to prepare it once it gets there and all right. that jazz. I mean, there's so much more to why people eat fast food than just whether or not um, they have access. But anyway, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back on Straight No Chaser with Michael Hurwitz and Stacey <laughs> for one or for a crowd. Fairway Market literally has everything you need for a fantastic meal. But if you don't feel like cooking, no worries. They cater. Check out fairwaymarket.com for more information 
And be sure to check the new blog, On Our Plate, for weekly specials, health tips, and recipes. Okay, we are back. Sorry about that, folks. A little... um shall we say, engineering malfunction there. Um, Stacy Miller, Executive Director of the Farmers Market Coalition, and Michael Hurwitz from Executive Director of Green Market NYC. Um, thanks for hanging in there, you guys. Um, so, Stacy, you were going to comment quickly on the, uh, on the article that Gina Collada wrote about food deserts and obesity, and then let's move on to what the farmers market sort of really is. Sure, and I, I don't know how much more Michael got to say um, after he... <laughs> I already great. cut him off. Don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> right after he said that. on <laughs> me. Um, so I think this article brings up like three thoughts, you know, and, my, and I think Michael and I should probably write a book together because I like I ramble about this issue too. But I think first of all, the idea of defining a food desert by the availability of a grocery store is pretty antiquated, not very creative um, way of, you know, that exemplifies this tendency that we have to address a very complex problem that's led to by like physical, economic, cultural issues with a very singularly focused solution. Mm-hmm. Um, the grocery stores, of course, they're being incentivized are typically chains. Their economic co- contribution to the community is probably limited to low-wage jobs where the profits are, to a large extent, funneled off to distant headquarters. And I think it's, it's an irony that the flagship grant program at USDA, the Farmers Market Promotion Program, that's designed to help support farmers markets, um, prioritizes projects that do serve food deserts. Meanwhile, the very definition of a food desert will not change. You could put five farmers markets and really transform the accessibility to good quality food in a community and yet it'll still, you'd still technically be considered a food desert mm-hmm. um, under that current definition. Um, so I think, though, the issue of food equity is very, very real, as Michael pointed out. Um, I think that we need to be a little bit more creative in thinking about the solutions. Um, the second point I wanted to make is that the, the myth, of course, is that were pointed out by many of the uh, commenters to that article in the New York Times, was that grocery stores are somehow this gleaming beacon of healthy choices, right? You know, we look at the retail space in any grocery store, and it processed foods and beverages typically predominate. Um, as John Weidman from the Food Trust said in that article, and um, not all grocery stores are created equal. Right. And um, then again, you know, this, that doesn't mean that the, f- the food environment and access is not absolutely critical. But the notion that like, if you build it, they will come, I think itself, in some ways, is, is naive. That's not, the only, that's not the only part of the equation. I mean, if you go back in time to 2006, when the Farmers Market Progr- Promotion Program that I just referred to was founded, I found some data that, um, you know, that, that year was a million dollars in grants for farmers markets in that first year of the grant program, mm-hmm. which sounds like quite a bit of money. But that same year, McDonald's spent $850 million just on its traditional media advertising in the U.S. And the company that owns KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut spent $76 million over the past 10 years just on Super Bowl ads. Oh, man. Um, Pepsi nice and stats, Coke spent 10, nearly $10 million together on lobbying last year. Mars, um, you know, maker of many a candy bar that mm-hmm. we may have grown up to love, um, spent 
2.3 million last year in just in lobbying Congress. Wow. So until the price tag of processed foods represents the true cost, then we're 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 really still at the early stages I think of fighting for health and equity um, in our communities or what we come to refer to as food deserts. Excellent. Thanks very much for those stats, Stacey. That was super. It was, Stacey, it was, those are, it's brilliant. I mean, and I just want to chime in that subsidies and advertising are our two greatest competitors. And I always say that my advertising budget is less than the cost of a song in one of those McDonald's commercials. And that's what we're up against. And they also have lobbyists, and they also have, they fund research studies. So it's... That's, that really is our greatest competition, and it can be over, very overwhelming at times. Absolutely. Well, let's let's move on and talk about what you're really here to talk about, because we've blown off almost half the program talking about this. Um, farmers markets have expanded enormously in the last two decades. I think I read a statistic that said we've gone in the last, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years from 1,700 nationwide to over 7,000. So um, do you, can you guys, can one of you, let's start with Michael, address, you know, the impact this has on um, rural life and agriculture? Is this, you know, is this really giving the shot in the arm to small-scale ag that we're hoping for, or is it just kind of a drop in the bucket? Well, I, from the, the national explosion, I think Stacy can address better, but I, I can certainly speak to what I've seen in the last 10 years here and, and having, you know, green market's been around for, for 35 years. Um, and I, you know, what was happening the 15 years prior to its being founded is the same thing that we're see- we're seeing today, and that was the loss of a half a million acres of farmland just in the Hudson Valley alone. So, um, what's happening? What, what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I think that more and more farmers are realizing that the industrial system is not working for them, and particularly small farmers, and that they they their reliance on getting a larger return of the food dollar is what's going to keep their farms in business. And I'd say about 90% of our farmers would not have their farms in production if they didn't have the ability to sell directly to consumers. Mm-hmm. In the last five years, we've gone from 170 producers to over 235. You know, we have 53 market locations. And it absolutely is because more and more farmers and more and more rural communities re- realize that their survival depends on being able to have access directly to the consumer. And more and more consumers are beginning to understand the relationship between food and health, whether it's personal health, community health, or environmental health, um, and want to have that connection with their food and want to know where their food comes from. And there's nothing that's more transparent and traceable than direct marketing. Yeah, absolutely. And Stacy, when you look at the sort of the national picture, do you see um, do you see farmers markets growing into communities that you wouldn't have expected? Like, I mean, Michael, it's it's kind of a given that that the Northeast and certainly New York City area is going to be very open and receptive. But right. Stacy, do you see in smaller towns uh, in the Midwest and so on where sort of that message isn't maybe as um, in your face as it is here? Um, do you see the the growth of, of farmers markets in those communities as well? Yeah, when you look at the the evolution of farmers markets over the last ten years, um, and the USDA farmers market directory is a, is a good um, is a good at least estimate of of that trend. You know, there's been 150 percent growth in the number of farmers markets according to their records, 
over the last 10 years. And I think what you'll see, you know, where there might be a stereotype of, like, high density of farmer's markets on both the West Coast and the East Coast, over that 10-year period, you start seeing a lot of filling in in the Midwest. A lot of our members, we have members in 48 states, and I'm often surprised at the, the types of markets or the types of organizations that are organizing markets, and I think it's really encouraging that markets can be run by municipalities, by um, community health organizations, by hospitals, by uh, agricultural organizations, by environmental organizations, um, sustainable ag organizations, and I think that's a real strength to the movement is that the diversity of missions and values that we all bring um, to the sector. But Michael's right. Like between, I guess between the last two ag censuses, there's been more than four million acres of U.S. farmland that's been developed. So. You know, the trend of, of younger people getting into farming, which farmers markets I think is really enabled and empowered, I don't know that we're necessarily keeping pace with how many farmers are, are being lost. I mean, we're certainly, um, certainly kind of making a dent in that and really inspiring a new generation. But as more and more consumers get involved, I mean, we're going to continue to have to push um, – push that envelope. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting and has actually has inspired me about Michael's markets is that, you know, 10 years ago, you might not have seen anybody outside the Midwest trying to produce and market grains locally or hops locally or certain kinds of tree fruits or vegetables that look familiar to the many new waves of immigrants that we see here in the U.S. Mm. Um, and because farmers markets offer a venue that incentivizes innovation and those that have policies in place that put farmers first, you kind of create this vacuum where suddenly you have entrepreneurs trying to fill a niche to produce those products locally because they know that they have a market um, in which they can innovate and experiment on a small scale, which no other part of the food system allows them to do. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting point, Stacey. I mean, I love the idea that these people are are starting to cater to immigrant populations and create, you know, opportunities where they're or or grow crops that that would not necessarily have been, um, you know, recognizable to the overall population. But thanks to an immigrant group coming in and and people recognizing that, that they're they're going for it. That makes it a more sort of viable, vibrant um, market, too, doesn't it? And it makes more people aware of those crops that they might not necessarily have uh, used in the past. Yeah, and I think it's kind of cool to see those cultural bridges being built in a farmer's market where um, I know one um, producer who was growing sweet potato greens for some of his fellow African um, um, residents in the mm-hmm. community where the market was, and that begs a lot of questions. People coming by, what is that? Um, so then you're creating this opportunity to educate people and really open their minds that farmers markets are not just tomatoes and green beans right. and sweet corn. And from the social perspective, you're having neighbors talking to each other and uniting around food. Yeah. And having right. conversations that they might not other, otherwise have and certainly that don't take place in a supermarket. Exactly. You guys, let's, that makes me think, want to run, jump right to this, um, to this question that I had for you about um, whether or not 
farmers markets can be scaled to the point where they could manage institutional contracts. Because I think that, um, you know, Michael, you and I have talked in the past about whether or not uh, regional farmers can be um, integrated into procurement contracts for the school lunch program in New York City. Right. And um, so let's talk a little bit about how, you know, if farmers markets are becoming a more vibrant and and thriving um, commercial operation, how likely is it for those farms to be able to come together and, and have a farmers market act as kind of a clearinghouse or would a farmers market act as a clearinghouse for institutional contracts? Michael, why don't you start and then Stacey after? Sure. Um, I'll answer this question in a couple of ways. And that is, I often say when talking about the need for wholesale infrastructure in the city is that farmers markets are amazing for what they do, but they can't address everything. And they can't address all of the demand, particularly in, in, in our region, with an emphasis on the institutional buyers. Um, you know, institutional buyers are really trying to pay as little as they, as they possibly can. There are some that who are then able to pass their costs on or figure out other ways to, to pay pay for those those resources, but oh, for the most part, like the Department of Education, they are trying to high pay, enter into the lowest paying contract for the, for the food that they can. They don't have a lot of money for reimbursement. Mm-hmm. So the answer is yes and no. Um, there is a significant amount of wholesale business that happens at a farmer's market. And a market like Union Square, I mean, we have, even in, in the South Bronx, we have food pantries coming to pick up from John Schmidt and, and probably Gary, Gary Globuchewski, a couple of the farmers who are there. So I think on a certain scale, absolutely, if there are farmers at a farmer's market who have a wholesale component to their businesses, absolutely. Um, but there are mid-sized growers, and we're losing our mid-sized growers at an even more alarming rate than our smallest guys. Hmm. Um, and they are wholesale growers, and they want to sell by the case or the pallet, not by a tractor trailer load or by a bunch. Um, and they are the solution to a lot of these issues that we're talking about and about institutional procurement of regionally produced agriculture products. But there is no infrastructure for them in the city and not much upstate for them to be able to aggregate those products and have the supply that can meet that price point. But the answer is yes, it's possible. Um, and farmers markets can serve as mini hubs, I mean, obviously those that have infrastructure um, can probably have our, our position to do a better job, but every day you'll see a significant amount of wholesale going on at Union Square, Brooklyn Borough Hall, and some of the other farmers markets that we have. Mm-hmm. Stacy, what about nationwide? Do you, see, uh, do you see an opportunity for farmers markets to be involved in institutional contracts in, say, smaller towns or cities? I like the way... Michael put that yes and no, because I think, I think that's true. Um, I know, you know, I, first of all, I, I, see, I do see farmer's markets as the ultimate food hub, and many of them have, have sort of organically or informally filled that role of kind of creating relationships, building, building relationships, or allowing farmers to build relationships with chefs, with, with other community buyers, with creating the demand in the community for parents, for uh, restaurant patrons to want to request or demand certain local products in those other outlets. So in that way, farmers markets do play that role. But I don't think, 
they have to be the ones that formalize that kind of a infrastructure because, again, as Michael said, you know, farmers markets have a lot to do to do what they're doing well. And I think the markets that really do well are ones that focus on the farmer's market itself as an organism Mm -hmm. and then help build partnerships or sort of facilitate or pollinate new um, entrepreneurs to kind of start that process. I know here in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, there's a pretty well-known nonprofit called the Local Food Hub, and they have um, completely independent from the farmer's market, but kind of inspired by it in some ways um, and using the relationships that they made with all the producers at the farmer's market to create um, their own business model where they do aggregate and distribute to a wide variety of retailers, institutions, uh, restaurants in the, in the region. And so I think it's really inspiring when that happens, and I think farmer's markets should certainly sort of support those efforts, but they don't need to be the ones undertaking them. If, if most farmer's markets are, or 60% of farmer's markets are run by volunteers, how they can take that on and do it well and do it professionally um, is a challenge. And there's certainly, and there's no doubt that there's a need for that kind of a, um, for that kind of resource, and it should be done well, just, just as farmer's markets should be uh, managed professionally. Right. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up, you guys, I regret to say, because I had like 25 more questions for you both. But um, Stacey, why don't you tell people how they can get more information about uh, the Farmers Market Coalition and, um, you know, stay up to date on what you guys are doing. And, and also, if they need a resource for information or support, uh, you're a great place to go. So what's your website? Great. It's farmersmarketcoalition.org. I'll smush together. Mm-hmm. And to one word, and we do have a farmers market uh, resource library there where you can search for existing tools, uh, resources, example documents, and um, we're always kind of compiling new resources and putting together um, webinars and other kinds of tools for our members. We're, we're kind of really active in some of the analyzing the farm bill um, as that's being developed. The Senate just released its draft on Friday, late on Friday, and so we're kind of working on those kinds of issues. We're about to launch, actually, our um, second annual campaign um, this year to celebrate our sixth birthday or our sixth anniversary, cool. uh, which is June 6th. So um, if you go to our website, you can find out all about that and, and way, ways to support us or learn more um, or become a member. Sounds great. And, Michael, you're just grownyc.org, right? We are. And I encourage people to go check out our compost expansion and find out where they can now take residential food scraps that's being collected by the New York City Department of Sanitation for the first time since 1992. DSNY is actually doing having a resident piloting a residential food waste pickup at farmers markets. Wow, that's way cool! I didn't know that. It is that. amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, well, composting is certainly the wave of the future, and we will be um, back next week. Uh, thank you both very much, Michael Hurwitz from the Green Market and Stacy Miller from Farmers Market Coalition. We'll be talking again soon, Michael. I'll see you soon. And next week, folks, I uh, hope you'll tune in for a discussion about urban farming around the world. Uh, we'll be talking with an author who discusses that in her new book, uh, Farm City. So. Um, See you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks to my sponsor, Fairway. Until next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. 
You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.